to the Theology Podcast. Great to have you with us for this episode. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written some books and done other things. Enough about me. How about you, Tom? Tom Price. I teach theology, philosophy, and ethics. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, today is Glenn's day. We're going to let Glenn introduce himself like we normally do in a moment and then take us right into the subject of the day. But I wanted to say parenthetically before we get into things, we're going to be in Memphis and we're going to be eating great barbecue and you can do that with us. You can eat great barbecue and uh, attend a live podcast. In fact, we're hoping to do a couple there. And uh, we're hoping to have lots of merchandise, and we're hoping to just spend some time with friends. And um, it's going to be June 14th at the PCA General Assembly. So we're not actually going to be on the floor of the assembly, but we're going to be at a nearby restaurant. Uh, Stay tuned for details. We're going to be filling in about all of that. But if you're going to be at uh, the PCA General Assembly, or you just happen to live in the Memphis area, and you're there, the you know, that, that week in June, we'd love to see it. Uh, anyway, that's enough for now on that. Glenn, take it away. I'm Glenn Sunshine, retired history professor, ministry associate at Reflections Ministry, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, that's the standard intro. Um, <laughs> so um, t- today, uh, our topic is imagination. And I am going to be getting at that through a book by uh, theologian and poet Malcolm Geit, um, entitled Lifting the Veil. Nice. Um, subtitle, Imagination in the Kingdom of God. Now, Geit has, the, the, the book's first chapter lays out the essential thesis for the entire book. The, the subsequent three chapters, it's not a very long book, the subsequent chapters give you examples of what he's talking about in different arenas. Um, but to understand what he's doing, it, it would be almost good to walk through chapter one in detail. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I do recommend the book. It's, it's a very interesting read. And Geit is a very good writer um, of both prose and poetry. But let, let's just start with a basic definition of imagination. The classical understanding of imagination, which Geit doesn't get into, is imagination is the, your ability to form images in your mind. It's really all, all that it meant originally. Um, and while Guy doesn't talk about that, that's part of the argument that he's making. It's sort of implicit in some, in some ways in what he's saying. Now, the reason why he wrote this book is that He thinks people have, well, he's right, I would say, people have lost the sense that imagination is a way of understanding reality. That most people, because of the Enlightenment, most people think that the, and and actually I had a discussion on on YouTube with somebody on this. You know, I, I, I commented that, that um, reason is not the only organ for finding truth. And he said, well, what else is there? Well, Geit would argue that what else is there is imagination. Right. And that imagination is is essential to understanding reality. Yeah, there's a 
a number of other people who would agree with him very strongly. I think about like George McDonald or C.S. Lewis or yeah. Coleridge and yeah. Coleridge. Yeah. 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 Uh, what was Lewis's famous statement about truth and, and meaning? Reason is the organ of truth. Imagine uh, imagination is the organ of meaning, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you have going on there is their their retrieval of basically the fact that form and content are not related accidentally, um, and and I mean that's that's part of the, the richness of being able to in, in the content of any truth is is the connectedness to a proper form and that capacity to imagine the to be connected to the form um is to to see more than merely just a kind of proposition or statement but its connection to reality and its fullness and i think that's kind of what they're trying to get get a hold of yeah another another person who's talked about this recently is holly ordway um mm. she's uh, done some good work on the subject yeah. So uh, Guy makes a number of kind of provocative statements along the way. But before we get, we get into his discussion of imagination, per, you know, as what we would normally think of as, as a person's imagination, he makes the argument that imagination is the only way. Again, think about imagination as the ability to create images. It's the only way that we can make sense of the world. You know, when you have a bunch of photons coming into your mm -hmm. eyes and skipping Kemper's idea of them messing with you, um, if you, you've got a bunch of photons coming into your eyes, you've got to interpret what it is. You've got to make sense of it. And so if, if what you're looking at, you determine is a tree, it's because you have an image of the tree in your mind and you're able to interpret what you're seeing through that image. Um, he argues that literally everything we know engages the imagination. Without the imagination, we cannot make sense of any of the sense data that's coming into us. That, he argues, is the failure of, re of Enlightenment reductionism. Yeah, it's, that's a very Kantian way of putting it, too, uh, which is interesting, because, you know, Kant's uh, approach is that the that reason, uh, the categories of reason, are what give some sense to the sense data that we have sort of flooding our minds. Um, but I think this is an interesting sort of departure because imagination often in a, in a world shaped by the way of thinking that we see with the Enlightenment is uh, something we need to kind of get over. You know, the idea is that the imagination is a liar. Yeah, that, right. Yeah, right. and, and cite several people from the Enlightenment who say that flat out. Yeah, right. And 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 we, you know, we must include some of the, you know, kind of the rhetoric out of the Reformation that kind of lended strongly to the Enlightenment to be kind of a secularization of it. I mean, Calvin has some very strong things. You know, the mind is an idol-making factory where just the capacity to make images. And it, it automatically somewhat is suspicious, especially in, in particular in relation to the divine. Um, but I think there was something, you know, something very, you know, there's a different point there. Um, the fact of in, the fact that we have fallen out of creation, if you will, our created capacity to discern truth um, that we need to be reconnected. But the church was we've talked about this before, and I don't want to run this trail, but the church was very careful for years in making sure that when it used language to reference God, as we talked about, it was not projecting 
imagination or images. It wasn't forming images. It was working with a strong via negativa or apophatic dimension. So whatever is said, it's also being unsaid in the right kind of ways to represent it. And so I think when that gets eclipsed, then then Calvin's right on the money. And I think in terms of that, and theology, but the flip side is with the Reformation and, and really Christianity as a whole, the the restoration of the imagination is a big part of our redemption. And just as Adam was able to name things properly because of this connectedness to the reality, um, the meaning and the content connected, I think this was part of the Christian task of seeing all things in Christ and being able to have an illumined imagination um, work the right way. Now, I'd like to just bring something to uh, you know to the table here related to uh, images and the tabernacle. So, uh, what we see in the tabernacle is an interesting sort of um, way of proceeding, which is you could say balanced on a razor's edge. Mm-hmm. So, there is no idol where the where the Lord dwells is an empty space, mm-hmm. but the entire tabernacle uh, was intended to convey a sense that you were in a heavenly place. In other words, it's a it's a it's an image mm-hmm. of the heavenly court, and there are images all over yeah. the tabernacle. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're on the tapestries. <laughs> they're they're uh, right there uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. For goodness' sake, yeah. you know, it, let's let's get real. Yeah. Uh, reformed tradition <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah. The Bible is full of imagery. Uh, it's just there's one uh, person that you're never to represent with an image, and that is God. Yeah. But uh, all the other stuff is in play. <laughs> yeah. Now, now where where Guy actually begins in a lot of ways in his argument is he says, "All right." You know, the Enlightenment puts this huge emphasis on reason and rejects imagination. But really what imagination does, he says, human understanding is based on two things. There is reason, yes, but there's also a kind of intuitive sense of the world. Mm -hmm. And what imagination does is it unites reason with intuition. Yeah. So he, so starting from that point, he, um, well, he says the, the, the problem that we have, he, he cites Coleridge here, actually. Um, the problem that we have is, as Coleridge says, uh, there is a veil over the world. Um, it's a veil that, that we've put in place ourselves uh, by, by long custom. It's a veil that's built on our sort of... <sighs> our consumerist mentality about the world, you know, that we, we view the world as something to be used for ourselves, uh, all kinds right. of things like this. But what imagination allows us to do is to lift the veil, hence the, the title of the book, so that we can see things for what they really are, not just how we habitually see them or what utility they have to us. Yeah, Geit on Coleridge is great. Uh, we've mm-hmm. talked about him and his book uh, Mariner before, where yeah. he talks about the rhyme of the ancient Mariner, which is, of course, one of the great poems in English, but mm-hmm. also, uh, a, you know, one of, uh, well, may, maybe it is Coleridge's greatest poem. 
Yeah, it, it probably is. Um, Kublai Khan is another one. Both of them written the same year, incidentally. Yeah. Um, well, he's a remarkably young man. He was only 25. Yeah. Uh, I'm reading Mariner right now. That's why I have these things right on the top of my head. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, right. Um, but now, from there, he, he takes the next step. And this is actually jumping off of Shakespeare, hmm. where intuition tells us something about the invisible. Yeah. Whereas reason tells us about the visible. Mm -hmm. As Shakespeare puts it, it's heaven and earth. Says the poet looks from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, mm -hmm. and and bodies forth what he sees. Okay. Um Geit's point in looking at this is that the imagination can work in both directions. We can start with, um, in, you know, almost a platonic concept of form, idea at that level, and then find ways to express it in, in, in the physical. Um, this is, for example, what Jesus does in the parables. Mm -hmm. He takes spiritual truth and finds an analog in this world. Although Geit would say that's not exactly what's going on, but more on that in a minute. Um, but the other thing you can do is look at this world and see through this world into the heavenly. Yeah. And imagination allows you to do both. Yeah. And what the artist does, or in Shakespeare's case, he says the poet, is he embodies this insight, this connection mm -hmm. between the earthly and the heavenly in, in his work. Yeah. This brings up something I'd like to explore a little bit, if you don't mind, Glenn, sure. and that's the, the work of the artist. So the, the artists uh, of our time have uh, lost touch with heavenly things. They've uh, s sort of sunk into the slow despond of their own subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And everything's a theater for their ego or, the east, or mm -hmm. either that or they're celebrating the meaninglessness yeah. and brutality of the world. Right. Uh, yeah, but okay. that's not the way artists understood their work uh, historically. <laughs> and so you, you look at you look at a lot of modern art, and uh, if you don't have somebody there to try to interpret it, you'll typically scratch your head at it. Yeah, um, I, I uh, went to the Guggenheim once, a modern art museum in New York. It's it's designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's a large spiral. Yeah, I've been there. So, so we went to the top and we started working our way down. Now, my mother, when she was a little girl growing up in New York, said about the Guggenheim, she always wanted to get to put on a pair of roller skates and just roll <laughs> down it. <laughs> and, and after not very long of go, going through these things, um, uh, Lynn looked at me and said, I'm ready for roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty tedious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, but theoretically, the art is supposed to be saying something. Yeah. Okay, but the difference between what Geit is saying and what you see in, in modern art of the stu stuff we saw in the Guggenheim is that it does, as you said, it doesn't connect to heavenly realities. The only statement it makes is a statement about this world. It's using this world stuff to point to this world. And yeah. while there's there is something to be said for that. Mm -hmm. It still needs to be, I would argue as a Christian, it still needs to be anchored in transcendent truth. Yeah. But for people who reject transcendent truth, 
all they're left with is, as you say, the echo chamber of their own ego yeah. uh, or statements about the meaninglessness of ultimate meaninglessness of everything. Yeah, this is, this is very much um, connected to, I mean, I, I was, I've been reading some Augustinian, you know, contemporary Augustinian theologians, and they often will talk about this language of the fall was a, a fall out of creation, not out of heaven, out of creation, but a creation that, of course, you know, is grounded in the eternal, in the heaven. And so when you fall out of creation, you become, in a sense, a distortion of it. And, and the whole emphasis is mastery from one's own ego or from one's own isolation or privation, right? Their, their own lack. And also, as, as Chris just mentioned, sort of in their own embrace as natural of their being fallen out of creation. Um, whereas I think the, the Christian vision is, and the artistic vision, um, is actually a connectedness, the recognition that the creation is connected in this way to the invisible. And both dimensions are significant. So you can have an artist just focusing on kind of what we would say is the visible, and yet there is a way of connecting with it, I think, with the imagination that something of the invisible is able to be discerned or uh, you know, attended to. And the flip side, you can have something focus more on the invisible, even the, you know, the transformation of, 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 of matter for, you know, like iconography or something where it's trying to reference, you know, the other world as it illumines this world. So you can have it go bo both directions, I think. So I think the artist is in some ways when it, when it is working with the richness of what is real um, is is uh, jumping back into creation, if you will. All right, the veil is being lifted. Yeah, yeah. One of the things uh, I've been reflecting on is is the subject of uh, you know the the reformed uh, uh, understanding or the reformed intuition when it comes to aesthetics. Um, and one of the things uh, that I think you can say uh, is that. Uh, there ought to be within our thinking a, a, a way of sort of seeing the analogs in creation to uh, uh, eternal verities. Yeah. So you can see, for example, so I, another thing I've been writing about and thinking about lately, because I'm speaking at this Bitcoin conference, is money. So why is, why is gold the standard? It, is it just because it's scarce? Well, there's lots of stuff out there that's scarce. Um, I think there are other things that are that that we see in gold. One is its luster. It, uh, another thing is its weight. But I also think um, the fact that it doesn't tarnish, that it doesn't um, need to keep you know be polished all the time, <laughs> like silver, <laughs> that it says something to us about all those things. Say something to us. Uh, and what do they say? Well, they remind us of someone uh, that those things in some sense uh, reflect. Um, and there's a reason why the closer you get to the center of the tabernacle, the, 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 the more gold you, you find. So the further out you get from the, from the Holy of Holies, you go to silver, you go to bronze, so bronze, silver, gold. There's a there's a kind of intu intuition. This gets back to your thought, Glenn. Uh, there's an intuition that this is the metal that is precious. But why is it precious? Because it's it's an analog. In some yeah. sense, it tells us or reminds us of the one who is truly precious. 
Yeah. Now, the the interesting thing where where Geit goes with this is that if in fact Shakespeare is right, and the work of the poet or the artist is bodying forth, quote unquote, the the um, the connection between earth and heaven. Where do we see that happening? In in a very literal way, it's, it's in the incarnation. And in the incarnation, a guy argues that all imagination, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, is connected ultimately to the incarnation. It is, it is very much dependent on it because what that does is it does bring earth and heaven together and in a very literal way bodies forth the connection. Hmm. Right, right. Um, now, yeah, yeah, there's there's a there's a term axis mundi, which is an interesting thing to consider in this respect, because the temple uh, in Judaism was considered to be that center of the world, um, the axis mundi. Uh, when we talk about the incarnation, and Jesus refers to himself and his body as yeah. the temple, yeah. isn't it interesting? He is the yeah. axis mundi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you could. You could really see, I mean, you know, there's a lot to explore here. I mean, to even think of Scripture's own hermeneutic, you know, as Jesus starts to set it forth as centered in him. Like, you know, you search the Scriptures um, looking, you know, looking for eternal life, and they are that which speaks of me, right? And then, But you see the way he often will unpack that meaning, as, uh, as, as Glenn has many times talked about. It's not our typical way just using our kind of— uh, propositional language and and rational faculties or empirical research to pick out those connections but if this if you know when we talk more about the way in which imagination grounded in the illumination of all things that is christ and then as christ being the mediator of that and so the purifier of ours allows us to actually be able to see that and that's kind of you know is, you know when he breathes on on the church basically the spirit there is us being connected to that as the people of god and the first fruits of that imagination being renewed and so that all the more it makes sense all the more of how the the church saw and began to retrieve uh, classical visions of beauty but seen through their significance in christ yeah. One of the one of the things that Geit points out is if you once again going back to his basic thing of imagination, it's where intuition and reason come together. Uh, it's where heaven and earth come together. Um, what do we see in Christ? We see the logos, who is reason, but he's also the vehicle through of creation. So there's an imaginative element in him. And then, you know, as I pointed out before, in the parables, Jesus takes heavenly truth and expresses it through earthly terms, which is an imaginative exercise, as as Geit would would have it. But there's something, there's one step more that we need to take here, that in this case, Jesus is the one, or the second person of the Trinity, is the one through whom all things were made. He is the logo. So all of these things that he's put in creation— that he later set, uses to show spiritual meaning, those are things that he put in the creation yeah. for that purpose. Yeah. So yeah, this, is a, this is a step in reasoning that many people fail to, to, to take. 
they they don't ever they they think of Jesus as sort of arbitrarily pulling things out of the out of the sort of the environment to uh, make his point, but what they don't think of is Christ as the one through whom all things came into being. They yeah. don't think of him as connected to creation at all. They think about him as sort of the escape hatch from it. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, uh, yeah, but as the logos, as the reason in the universe, all of these things were put there for a purpose, yeah. which he then elucidates through his parables and his teaching. They're, they're, they're there with the intention of providing visual aids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, I, I tend to do it because I reflect so much on the doctrine of creation. I tend to always make my connections there, but I think it's very rich right there because there's this way in which what we are as creatures and the fact that we are, our existence, are both such that there is, in the sense that we receive everything from the Logos, there is an openness to it by nature um, that is oriented to it because it's the source and that's our perfection. And because of that, it is shot through with all of that which the creator, the Logos, stamps onto it. And each thing is very different, even though they're all connected. And that difference is part of refracting the fullness that Christ is, but in the creaturely, in a creaturely way. And so what you, what you have there is you have a creation that is just chock full of surplus of meaning that overrides one surface level, you know, significance. It, 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 it is, it is, you know, if you talk about it, it's, it's a, it's a world rich with that for which the poet can do its work. Yeah. You know, a, a, a quick example from, uh, from Lynn she was uh, a wildlife management major um, mm-hmm. in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, she then got a nursing degree, which made her qualified to be a mother. Um, <laughs> uh, but she was taking a tree class. <laughs> and Lynn loves beaches. Beaches, when they're not covered in graffiti, uh, as they frequently are, beaches are really beautiful trees. Yeah. And Lynn had commented to uh, her uh, the TA who was teaching the tree class, how much she liked beaches. And he looked at her like she was crazy and basically said, they're worthless. They're not good for anything. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's uh, the problem. Yeah. 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 Be- because you've got a, a kind of a, a mindset, like you noted earlier, that's just simply instrumental in character. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't look out on the world and see, anything uh well it doesn't hear anything is another way to put it yeah. it doesn't it doesn't hear the so we're told through you know throughout scripture that that creation praises god yeah but um i think a lot of people out there particularly who have the same kind of outlook they think that's just uh hallmark greeting card stuff yeah. they don't really think of that as actually the case and if they uh, they do think it's the case is strictly because the Bible said so. In other words, there was yeah. nothing there before uh, <laughs> the, the Bible s- said came that. out, came out, and, and yeah, spoke it in, into existence at that moment. Right. Well, it's, well, it's interesting because I, you hit on something very good, and I know we could go a long way with this, but again, back to the classic world that that uh, you know this stuff is was more 
it had a more comprehensive view of some of these things. The, the relation of our desire and our appetites to reality, likewise, are very significant um, because it, it is it is a distortion of our desires or a trying merely to, to fill an immediate lack or need we have um, rather than the longing um, that is, is built into them when certain things do not fully satisfy. And it's, it is some of that longing, I guess, that Lewis will hit on with his theme of joy. And you'll see theologians with the notion of happiness, that there is, there is something about our created nature in its incompleteness and creation with all the beauty that can satisfy but can't satisfy fully that is showing us in our imagination, if you will, that there is a more, there is, there is a something that is more than just subjective, um, that it, that it doesn't, it doesn't satiate. And so that, that kind of, that drive when allowed to, to kind of be cultivated the right way, I think has an antenna for the beautiful and the created in a fuller sense than merely running after gratification and gratification. This is why, what, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I mean, you're talking the, the highest point of, of being able to see beauty, right? You know, um, you brought up C.S. Lewis. Um, Guy quotes one of his poems called Reason. Mm. And basically, you know, the point of it is that Lewis's reason, but before he was a Christian, his mm. reason told him that the world was functionally meaningless, barren, joyless, and all of that kind of thing. His reason saw that, but everything he loved came out of mythology. Everything that he loved was mythology, was folklore, all of that kind of thing. And in this poem, he talks about this split within himself hmm. between Athena, on the one hand, representing reason, and Demeter, um, mm -hmm. the goddess of, of um, heart, the great mother, who represents, you know, intuition, um, mythology, it you know, helps, all of yeah. those kinds of things. And he said... You know, in, in the poem, he talks about if someone, if he could find a way of honoring both of them, of bringing these two halves of himself together, then he would truly believe. Hmm. And what you find is that that's exactly what Jesus does. Yeah. You know, but but this this notion that everything he thought with his reason left him sort of cold and dreary yeah. and everything he loved was the imagination. This is why his notion, and it is very profound, and I think people that don't have, don't understand what he's up to will get it wrong. But when he talks about Christ as myth become fact. Right. Because there, you know, it goes back to the ancient debates about what, you know, the, the precedence of logos over mythos. And most people are thinking myth there means something less than fully real, where it's the exact opposite. We're talking about the deepest kind of plenitude of reality that that, you know, you can't put in a test tube and that you can't you can't you can't get at on the surface. Yet it makes sense of everything else because it is so full. And that's kind of what he's up to. And so reason can't you know, uh, Charles Taylor once said reason. Yes, we need it. But without the fuller picture, we can't get anywhere beyond the end of our nose. And I think that was a good way of putting it. Yeah, Chris, you look like you you were ready to jump in there a minute. Well, I, ago. I, my my mind's been running in all, you know, <laughs> the directions that uh, 
it tends to run. I, yeah. I think uh, with with regard to this uh, plenitude that Tom just noted, there's a there's a tendency for us to I think with reason keep the realities that reason is describing to us at a distance at arm's length. Yeah. Um, whereas when I, th- when we ha- have the imagination, uh, in, it is sort of, uh, uh, in the driver's seat, um, we're right there in it yeah. to get my drift. Yeah. And, and maybe that's precisely the reason why some people prefer to think about, uh, yeah. the, about reality rather than sort of to imaginatively enter it. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think this gets at, uh, epistemology. What, what do we, what do we, what do we call knowledge or how do we classify different things that we know? So, you know, Glenn knows Lynn, um, and that's different than, um, people in the podcast who know Lynn just by her name and, and understand that she's the wife of Glenn, but does that make it subjective in this, in the sense that it's somehow less real than, uh, the other, actually it's more real. Um, the, the, the fact that Glenn knows Lynn personally, uh, although it doesn't have currency, it doesn't, it's not something he can give to somebody else. Um, it nevertheless is more real, even though it's not something that can be written down in a book. Yeah, that, that's a point Packer makes in Knowing God, mm-hmm. that the more complex something is, the harder it is to get to know. And when you're dealing with a person, you can only get to know the person if the person chooses to reveal him or herself to you. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you, know, and you can know all the facts without knowing the person. Yeah. And, and likewise, I think it, it gets at a richer notion of our connectedness to all things created, that what, what earlier... Christians would call participation, right? Or even the Platonic tradition, the way in which we, we aren't merely, you know, when we talk in him, we live and move and have our being, all of us. Um, the, the interconnection is personal and the interconnection with everything is our sharing in it as it discloses itself. I mean, you'll have someone even as rational as an Aquinas say, knowing is a participating in the reality of the thing itself as it discloses itself to us. So there is an intimacy when we are related to things the right way, creation the right way, that, that allows it to disclose itself in ways beyond merely, you know, this kind of detached observation and disconnectedness. Well, one of the things that I think people uh, hear when they when they hear this sort of thing from people like us is they say, oh, you're talking about experience. Hmm. Um, well, yes and no, uh, because I think what people consider experience today is not what maybe participation is getting at. That's right. Ex- yeah. exper- experience today is like I'm trapped in my head yeah. and I'm just kind of like, puttering around and every once in a while something occurs to me. Uh, (laughs) but it's just in, it's just in my head. It's not like I'm actually dipping into anything outside my head. It's just an image in my head. Whereas I think participation is uh, a way of thinking about our lives, uh, which really is, uh, there's, you could say it's like a, like an ocean and you're Mm -hmm. swimming in it. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, you could say it in, in a way that's an experience, but in another sense, you're actually uh, getting wet. <laughs> yeah. You're you're actually um, in uh, a medium that um, is separate from you, and yet you're you're in it. Yeah. Uh, so there's an objective reality there. Yeah. It's not just simply in your head. And um, I think, yeah, that instrumental yeah. care, I mean, it, this really bespeaks, especially for Christians, the way in which we, our created realities are significant and our, our material and historical realities, not just merely as surface or something to be detached from, but indwelt and by being indwelt, still connected to the transcendent, which is beyond it. And I, and I think that is the, that is the, it's a richer objectivity. It's not a deeper yeah. going into me in my ego. Right, it's not subjective in the in the pejorative That's way right. we talk about subjectivity. Yeah. Um, but again, it gets us back to this this idea that unless it has currency, unless you can sort of boil it down to the level of uh, you know a paragraph or a sentence mm-hmm. uh, and convey it that way, then it's not real. Um, it's a, it's just the reverse. You just can't squeeze this large reality into a sentence. Yeah. If, if you want to drift. That yeah, doesn't mean um, it's irrational, but it just doesn't mean that uh, it's con- conveyed to other people in the ways that maybe we think this kind of stuff can be conveyed. Yeah, I'm going to read you a little bit of, the, of Coleridge here. He's talking about the the problem that, that we have with imagination, um, for, with seeing the world as it really is. He says, um, the problem comes in consequence of the film of familiarity. In selfish solicitude, we have eyes yet see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither understand nor feel. So the, the, the fact that we see these things every day, we start taking them for granted. And when he talks about selfish solicitude, um, the, it comes from the word solicit. It has to do with buying, selling, and you know this sort of instrumental view of reality. Um, and then he adds earlier on, he talks about the lethargy of custom. You know, that we just have this, you know, we, we just sort of take everything for granted. We never really think about it. We just, you know, um, you know, in contrast to this, um, l- uh, let's use an example that Lewis would like. Um, the pagan world looked at the cycles of nature, winter um, giving way to spring, to summer, to fall, to winter, and so on. And they saw a cycle of life uh, growing, uh, life dying off, life dead, and life coming back. Okay. Or the Nile River rises, it, it floods, and it sinks. And so in Egypt, the Nile River became an image of, uh, of eternal life. Yeah. Uh, Osiris, the god of the dead, was... A murdered by his brother, chopped into pieces and thrown in the Nile, and his wife Isis assembled the pieces and he came back to life. That's the Nile cycles. Yeah, you know. So we we see this, and you know the the Jesus myth people and 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 people of that sort look and say, well, Jesus is just another one of these dying and rising God things. You know <laughs> that we see so often. He's a composite of this. Well, yeah, no. Um, and the reason for the no actually has to do with the fact that Jesus is the Logos. And that when he created the world, 
He created it with cycles and images in it of death and resurrection to give people a hint of what was to come and what he would himself accomplish. Yeah, yeah. So when so the point is, pagans could look at the world and see genuine truth in it, yeah. connecting heavenly and earthly, even though they didn't get the complete picture, which you can only get through special revelation. I have to add that important, yeah. you know. Yeah. But but what what this says to me though is that, you know, Jesus does the same thing. He uses things in this world to illustrate heavenly truths and all that kind of thing. But it also suggests that we can go out and look at nature ourselves, look at the creation ourselves, and see the heavenly realities through them. If the pagans could do it without Christ, how much more should we be able to do it who know Christ, who know the one who is the, the reason, the logos behind the universe, the one who does body forth heaven and earth together. Hmm. Yeah, I think that there's a, a, a kind of, uh, I guess, handicap that, that even Christians uh, are subject to in which um, there's a kind of, uh, well, there's a failure to see these things because of, uh, of a lack of, well, I guess insight. There's, there's a, there's a marvelous, uh, story, short story. It's very, it's, it's not one of his better known stories, but this, it's a story by Lewis entitled the shoddy lands. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's, but it, but in this, yeah. but in the story, Lewis, the narrator, uh, is transposed into the mind of a material, very materialistic hmm. young woman. And, <laughs> everything becomes ugly. In other words, he, he's, he's actually kind of looking and sort of a, sort of observing the world through her eyes. And, uh, the only things that are able to sort of, uh, get her attention are what you would think sort of material and, uh, uh, status symbol things. Um, and what, you take away from the story, and if this is what I think he, he wants you to take away, is that there are people out there who are stuck in in a in a, in a way of seeing the world that really is miserable. It's, it's sort of like, you know, sometimes when I'll read a, an author, I'll think, how do you live in your head? Uh, it's just so ugly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, no wonder you're miserable, you know. And 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 I and I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, Glenn, about pagans. Um, I do think that um, when we're talking about the pagan um, insight into the world, we're talking about the best pagans. There were probably oh. just as many shoddy, <laughs> minded, yeah. if not more. Uh, than in the modern world. And and uh, you, you get these people who recognize the cycles of nature and therefore determine that they've got to sacrifice human beings to keep them going. Right. I mean, that's you right. know, they, yeah. I'm not saying right. that they got it all right. That's <laughs> right. right. And what they did have was, was certainly tainted by sin. Yeah. But the fact is they still saw things in the yeah. natural world that do, in, that as Lewis or Tolkien would tell you, do in fact point to Christ. And yeah. they got they got at least the hint right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now this isn't, don't hear me as advocating a return to paganism. I'm not doing that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, the, all, all we're talking about is the fact that the creation is the creation and no matter how much we've fallen out of it, it doesn't cease to be creation. And this mm -hmm. is why it always, it, it always 
reveals, but it also in that revelation and it's in, in the limits that are placed on it by our fallenness, um, it, it, it reveals enough for us, one, to recognize, I mean, that we should recognize um, that we're out of step with it. <laughs> um, that's the point later when the gospel comes, right? It, sh- it, sh- it shows that what we did know of God, how we didn't do good things with. Um, and yet we did know enough and that that echo is proven over and over again in the way in which truth has allowed people to go on and continue, despite the fact that it was limited and we distorted our interpretations of it. Well, I'd like to take this in a in a direction that I think many of our listeners probably took it initially, and that is kind of flights of imagination. Uh, I, I think that um, my childhood... Um, was very imaginative, but um, it was not self-consciously Christian in any respect. I, um, so let, let me give you an example of what I'm getting at. So I, I, Marla and I last night watched the 2008 uh, film uh, Speed Racer. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody who uh, grew up you know, in the 60s and the 70s, when they hear Speed Racer, their minds uh, <laughs> go back to that. Japanese uh, you know, cartoon, early that, anime. Oh yeah, yeah, which we all loved. Sing, I can even still sing the theme song. Oh yeah, it's going through my mind right now. Here he comes. Here comes Speed Racer. <laughs> now I'm gonna uh, just put an earworm in everybody. But in, in, there, there's this marvelous scene early in the film where Speed Racer is just a kid in school, and he doesn't want to be in school. He wants to be at, with his brother Rex. Uh, in the in the Mach five, you know, and, and he's he's racing, and and he's not doing his homework. He's not reading. His just mind is uh, on a on a flight of fancy. I think that's what most people think of when they think about you know the imagination is that sort of thing. Now Man. I think there's a, I think there's more going on even in that than yeah. we than we know. But uh, I guess what I'm getting at is how do we go from that to these grand. Uh, sort of ways of thinking about how imagination connects us with eternal verities. Yeah. Um, by the way, I wouldn't have used Speed Racer. I'd have used Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> that's, that's another good one, sure. Calvin and Hobbes, that's exactly, that's exactly where Calvin is. Um, I, I think what we, we need to... I, I, th- th- this is a complicated question because it gets into the nature of art. It gets into a wide range of other things. So an artist, a, you know, a Tolkien writing the Lord of the Rings was not, at least initially, um, he was not self-consciously writing a Christian work. He said as, you know, in the rewrites, it it became that more as he wrote it, and then especially in the rewrites and edits. Um, But he he was, all he was interested in doing was telling a good story and, uh, and work, and, presenting a world, the world of his imagination, the world that he had created, um, and telling a good story in that context. Um, Jim Butcher, uh, a uh, modern fantasy writer, uh, says you should never preach better than you can write. Mm -hmm. You know, so your story, your characters and things like that have to be compelling. That has to be first place. Not, not the the message, you know, yeah. y- y- because otherwise you end up with something that's that's little more yeah. than propaganda. 
and generally, you know, the, the proverbial badness of most Christian movies come from that. They're preaching yeah. better than they're telling stories. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I don't I think that what, what we're talking about here is is something a little bit different from the kind of it can grow out of the childish flights of fantasy that you're you're talking about here. Those things are things that I think with an adult, in, in, kids who indulge their imagination as children become imaginative adults later. Yeah. I, I think that that's, you know, we have to distinguish between, you know, sort of the childish side of the thing and an adult approach. Well, this brings up something worth considering is, is, is imagination something that we all possess to the same degree? If it's not, uh, what, you know, how do we uh, understand the relationship between those who maybe possess it in a greater measure than those who don't uh, possess it as much? You know, there are a lot of different things kind of, yeah. kind of at, at work here. Um, you know, I, I can remember... Um, very self-consciously deciding to enter into my imagination to escape the doldrums that I uh, was enduring in school, you know. Hmm. Um, and there were other people who just, you know, just didn't understand. They, they, they didn't identify with me in that way at all. That was just something that was, well, he's like that. Um, I, I, I think that there is nothing that we that any of us have that is going to be the same in everybody. Mm. So there are people who've got more imagination than others. But one, one of the things, you know, I used to do a lot with music. I wasn't a music major like Tom, but I used to play a lot of music. And, I, you know, I would talk to people about it and they would say, well, you know, I don't really play an instrument or anything like that. And what, what I ended up ultimately telling them is, you know what? People who play music need people who listen to music. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it, 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 you know, it, and and I would say the same thing. Poets need people who appreciate poetry, who read poetry. Yeah. Storytellers need listeners. Yeah, you know, it it it's not. You know, there are there are some people who are gifted in these areas. There are others who who aren't. But the the ones who aren't are just as essential to the creative process as recipients of it they are part of they're they're part of the dialogue that takes place in the arts and in imaginative literature or whatever and you, you know there's you know there's something i you know it's just kind of sprung to mind when you talked about that is is that you know the fact that we have to make that case already tells us how far down the line i think post enlightenment we've become and i'll give you an example um i know you know i know a lot of uh, i have a lot of good friends um that are you know a friend like from chile for example and and my wife's family from colombia and one of the things when they all get together whether it's friends and family they will get together they do they do music together um, but they also will cite poetry that they hand down. It's like my my father-in-law. He has memorized poetry, and they will stand up, and they will do this for hours. <laughs> so so there is a, there's like a cultural connectedness to these stories, to these songs, to family, family life together um, that is very enriching and informative. And I think it, it is, you know, it's continuously multiplied generation to generation that way. Um, and I often think of the church handing on the liturgy and handing on, you know, the deposit of faith in a very similar way. This is something that is not just about vain repetition, 
but it's kind of the deepest kind of formation. And so I, it, the, the imagination is very significant in all of that. Yeah, we see, I think, a, uh, an openness uh, in children, a, uh, yeah. a willingness to enter imaginatively into s- stories particularly. So yeah. with, you know, uh, my own experience with kids, my own kids, now my grandchildren, there is actually a, a real hunger for it. Um, yeah. they, it's not that, you know, you're having to force them to listen. It's something yeah. that they're actually, it's the reverse. They're begging for you to do it. And you're like, yeah. Oh no, I gotta do this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's, you know, but I, I guess, uh, you know, it's a, it's a marvelous thing, but, but I, but let's say we, we find a person uh, who is midway through his or her life and they associate that kind of thing with their early years. Yeah. Uh, they, they thought they had gotten over it. They thought maybe it was just childish and not very valuable, but now they're listening to us and they're in there and they're thinking, you know, I've been missing out on some stuff. Yeah. How do we how how do we help them uh, kind of enter back into that imaginative space that they once found themselves in so readily when they were small? Hmm. Is there, you know what what are the steps or are there ways that we can help uh, with that hmm. process? Any any thoughts on that, Glenn? Did did Geit get into that at all? Uh, no, actually, he didn't. Um, although I think his book is itself an exercise in trying to do that for mm. people. Um, now, his his thing—he's a poet, so his examples come primarily from poetry. But he has a number of visual arts um, elements in it as well. Um, but I, I think that's the—that's sort of the first step. You know, the interesting thing is—you know—I'll give you an example for me. Uh, I did the usual thing with poetry in school. You know, I, you know, I had to memorize a couple of poems yeah. and things like that. And when I was in college, I took courses on epic literature, um, you know, which is written in poetic meter. Um, all of these things. I mean, I can recite sections of Homer in Greek. I never understood it. Yeah. I never really got what was going on in poetry. Yeah. I thought I did. Yeah. But but I at best, you know, I'm a post enlightenment person. Yeah. I at best read the poetry on a superficial level. Yeah. I didn't understand yeah. what poetry was really about and what it is for. And it's only really actually very recently, um, largely at the insistence of uh, of Ken Boa, my employer. <laughs> <laughs> And, and mentor and friend and all and a whole bunch of other things that I've actually started trying to sink into poetry. Yeah. And what I found, what I found really helpful is, you know, you, you, I've, I've talked about Malcolm Geit on several occasions. Geit has a series of a, a number of books in which he takes you through seasons of the church year, Advent and Lent, and then others as well. And every day he's got a poem. Some of them are his, some of them are other people. But he always includes a commentary in these books. And the commentary helped me really get what poetry is and what it is for. All of the stuff that I missed, you know, learning rhetorical devices or poetic devices or whatever, all of this stuff that I missed by learning just sort of the technical aspects of it, Geit has really done a lot 
to help open that up to me so that I understand it better. So that, I suppose, is another approach. You can, you know, a guide will do it for poetry, but I imagine if you get good people doing literary criticism or artistic criticism or commentaries of that sort, it can it can start opening up if you're like me and, and basically trained in a pretty rationalistic manner, it can start opening these things up in new ways. Yeah, for me, particularly with epic poetry, uh, there's an initial inertia that I that I suffer from. Uh, maybe that's not the best way to put it, but there's this barrier. Maybe that's another way to, that's a better way to, that I have to kind of push through Yeah, because it's work. Not, yeah. You know, well that, yeah, that's the thing. That's one of the things I was going to say. It requires a special labor and attentiveness. Yeah. So like if you're reading Homer, if you're reading, you know, uh, Virgil, um, Dante, uh, Milton, um, you know, you got to got to work at it a little bit yeah. and then you get into it. And then the way it, it communicates to you is sort of almost from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. You know, you're not working in the, in the, in the world of abstract, uh, you know, sort of, uh, things you're, you're working, th- you know, up from the, the, from the sensual physical, you know, what, what is the poet, uh, doing? He's just, he's putting into words, a vision or a smell or a, a, a dread or, you know, in other words, there, there are all these things that are going. Now there is the, the description of the action, uh, but there are, and, and then there are these, uh, um, these moments. So like when I did, when I did my book uh, on uh, the, uh, the Aeneid, uh, you know, household and war for the cosmos, that, uh, was something I, I knew what I was looking for initially. I said, I, I know what's going on in the Aeneid. It took me all of like, you know, maybe 10 minutes to say, I, I this is, this is what I, I need to do with it. But, uh, you know, I had to read, read it, push my way through it at different points, make myself, uh, different times, you know, keep at it. Uh, but there would, there would be, the, there would be those, uh, epiphanies, those moments yeah. of, of, of uh, where it wasn't it wasn't like a syllogistic approach, a syllogism where I'm working my way through the through the premises to the conclusion. I'm, instead, it's more uh, just aha, kind of kind of behold moments. Yeah, yeah. The the thing with epic poetry in particular is you have to realize. Well, probably the most damning book review I ever saw was someone said of the Penguin edition of the Odyssey <laughs> that it demonstrated that modern readers read for the plot. Yeah. Now, the fact that it sold a million copies shows that modern yeah. readers read for the plot. Uh, in other words, all the art was functionally gone from it. Um, but the problem is we do read for the plot, especially yeah. if you're dealing with epic poetry. You want to know the story because we don't really have the categories anymore at least they're not inbred in us as much we don't have the categories to appreciate the poetry on the level of the the people it was written for you know uh, i think it's xenophon at one point talked about uh, meeting somebody in athens whose father told him he should memorize homer because it would make him a better person so he memorized both the iliad and the odyssey (laughs) Now, we look at that and we say, how is that going to make him a better person? Mm-hmm. Because we don't know how to read poetry. Yeah. Well, and I also think, how did he memorize those enormous 
works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, and that's, you know, that, and again, traditionally storytelling cultures, that, that often is the way you internalize this stuff. It was meant to be. And I think that's another way in. I think, I mean, if you want kind of practices to pass on to another generation, um, it's a little different. You can start the internalizing, but you have to, you have to create atmospheres of, of appreciation along with it. Um, for someone, you know, that's older that may want to get back and maybe they don't like, you know, critical theory or reading commentaries, um, maybe just getting, you know, getting advice on good places to start for, you know, for, you know, poetry, good poetry, um, good, good stories. And, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe it's capturing your, your imagination through, through an experience like visiting a huge architectural, you know, a, a church that is very beautiful, you know, and just being able to start appreciating it, being drawn in from the senses, being pulled in a different direction than the ego, um, that, that really, uh, bring you into, I think beautiful music is very similar. There's a point at which it can actually just break through, um, and pull you in its direction. And then there are good, you know, I mean, I know, uh, uh, great courses have once in a while, they'll have great music appreciation and, uh, art appreciation What are good introductions that aren't so laborious and you don't have to be an academic to, to appreciate them. Great Courses has an excellent uh, series on Dante. Ah. Um, Kurt, uh, yeah, I forgot the, hmm. Kurtz and Hartman, something like that. Uh, yeah. I actually have one of their books. They, they teamed up to write a book on, on the medieval worldview, I believe it was. Nice. But, um, but yeah, so yeah, Great Courses is another, another wonderful place to go or similar kinds of things. It doesn't have to be that company. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to point out, though, we're running out of time here. I'd like to point out just one other thing. I was talking before about, if you will, exegeting nature, the way the pagans could see death and resurrection in it. Mm -hmm. The same thing applies to exegeting scripture. Mm -hmm. Just like we tend to look at nature through the lens of reason, we look at scripture the same way. With the net result that when Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, and these are the things that speak of me. Yeah. When we read the Old Testament, we don't see it speaking of Jesus. Yeah. And I actually read a book. It was, I, I used to think it was, it was in probably one of the top books I'd run into on Bible study. I'm no longer quite so convinced of that. Uh, I won't give you the title, but the author said that you shouldn't be looking for typologies and allegories in the Old Testament even though the Apostle Paul did that, because he was an apostle and he was authorized to do that, you're not. I think I, think I know the book you're talking about. I've heard it. So the point is the same thing on imagination for the people who are really, you know, want to focus on scripture or something like that. The same things about imaginative reading of nature and seeing spiritual truths in the natural world also applies when we are reading the Old Testament, we should, Jesus told us the two keys to the Old Testament. Number one, they taught, it talks about him. Number two, it's built around loving God and loving your neighbor. And if we read the Old Testament and don't get those things out of it, we're doing it wrong according to Jesus. Yeah. So, we, so what, this again requires that same kind of connection of the earthly and heavenly, the imagination to make it work. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point to end on there, Glenn. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. 
Hey, thanks a lot for listening uh, to the Theology Podcast. You've made it to the end of this episode. And if you like what you've heard and you'd like to support us, uh, go to our Patreon page. It's right there in the show notes. Uh, We've had a a few people who've uh, come on board here recently, and we're very grateful for those new patrons. Thank you for joining. Um, We're uh, at 31 patrons right now. We'd love to get that up to about 50. Um, This, of course, helps us to pay the bills. Uh, There are bills that that, uh, come with doing the show. Uh, We don't take any pay, uh, but we do pay other people (laughs) to produce the show and post it. And we pay the website to host it, all that kind of stuff. So there are costs. So we do appreciate those those folks out there who uh, contribute on an ongoing basis. Thank you very much for that. And you can be one of those people. (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.